And the two things I always say to my athletes is if you can get your foot up in front of you, you have potential to put better force into the ground, create better power, and you have better balance along the way. No one really stumbles because their feet are too up in front of them. Usually they stumble because their torso's falling over in front of themselves, almost like they're falling downhill. Welcome to the Business of Speed podcast with Nick Bratton and Steve Brownstein. From their 25 years of experience in business and training, Nick and Steve will bring you insight, research, and industry thought leaders on all matters of business, leadership, and training. This show will help all professionals improve the growth of their business, coaching knowledge, and leadership ability. As coaches and leaders, you are asked to wear many hats. Let them help you manage this balancing act with the Business of Speed podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Business of Speed podcast. Steve Breidenstein here with Nick Bratton. Super excited for our topics today that we're going to be touching on. First one, one of our most discussed things behind the scenes is resistance sprint training. And how are we doing it? What are we using as different tools to do it? What's the desired outcomes of it? We all see people dragging sleds, doing band work, but trying to kind of go a little bit more into detail about why we use it in our facilities. On the leadership side, uh, a tough topic sometimes for coaches is leading if you feel that you're introverted and trying to feel authentic when you think that you need to be extroverted and looking at what are the kind of differences that you're going to apply as a leader of a staff or a leader of athletes and then understanding your own personality and how you can kind of recharge your own battery. And what do you need to do to get yourself feeling great for that next week? Because quickly you can kind of run yourself down if you're just kind of putting the pedal to the metal on that. And the last one, one of our most important topics when it comes to business is relationship building. And we talk about it in the idea of building relationships with our athletes, building relationships with their parents, building relationships with other coaches, but that goes far beyond that. And Nick's going to give us some awesome insights into just some really current examples of what's going on with Bratton Sports Performance with some of the people in their facility and how those relationships are expanding well beyond just training and referrals. And we have some of those from our past here at TC Boost as well. And that's going to be a really great discussion about the importance of intentionality in your relationship building. But Nick, uh, starting off today, how's everything going on your end? Uh, things are going well down here. Um, it is uh, right around the end of March here. And so it's uh, upper 60s, feels great outside. Uh, just enjoying the spring while we have it. Um, facilities slowing down a little bit with spring break and things going on. Um, and so, you know, good time of year for us as we uh, uh, get ready for the summer to hit and all the busyness that comes with it. No doubt. I know it's up here. It feels like it's summertime because it's like 52 uh, so we're going, we're going wild again, uh, but uh, sports finally started back here in Chicagoland. So we had football played on Friday night, uh, the high school I'm affiliated with, we, they struggled a bit, but it was still great to just be able to go out there and compete as teammates. The hockey team that uh, our company usually works with, they are actually playing the state championship today at 4 p.m. So very exciting, but they're having to play the state championship in Wisconsin due to COVID rules. Um, so I'm going to be cheering them on from afar. Uh, but it's definitely an exciting time for us in Chicago, which feels like 
we haven't had a sport to really cheer on in a long time. And also March Madness just started for, for all of us in the coaching world. So that's been a nice, exciting piece that's been going on as well. Uh, just to be able to see sports being played is always fun. Yeah, absolutely. So today let's uh, jump into our first topic, Nick. Resisted sprint training. Um, on paper, it seems simple. Just put some load on somebody, have them run, take the load off, they'll run faster. That's not really the case. It's not really just what we're trying to do. So when you guys are applying loads to athletes while they're running, what does it kind of look like? What are you thinking about? What are you using? Give us a little bit of a breakdown, uh, maybe surface level to start, and we'll dive in deeper as we go here. Sure, sure. So um, I've actually <clears throat> written on this topic a couple of times. So when it comes to resisted sprint training, I, th I think that there are a number of modalities that we can use. Um, so to lay them out there, you know, we can go through, um, Steve, first off, you wrote on the 1080 sprint, which you guys use. Uh, I believe you guys also have run rockets. Um, those are tools that are great to use as well. Um, band resisted sprinting. Uh, an easy one, if you have accessibility to it, uh, is uphill sprinting. Um, and we'll kind of talk about what, what the optimal uh, range for that is. Um, and then a tool that's been used in the past is, is parachutes. So I definitely think that there is um, an order for this as far as uh, most beneficial and least beneficial. Um, I've, I've been very vocal about the point that I'm not a big fan of parachutes. Um, you know, the uh, resistance on those is um, uh, always kind of adjusted and, and changing based on, you know, where you're sprinting, how you're sprinting, how you're using them. Um, the vector of force that's uh, being created on the body is always changing. If it's a windy day, it can be pulling you back and up. If it's not, it can be pulling you off to the side. And so um, it can have some adjustment on the mechanics. Uh, again, with uphill sprinting, you know, I think that that is a, a great tool to use, um, but you have to have the, the optimal hill in order to do it. You know, research tells us that uh, a hill somewhere between four and eight degrees of elevation um, is what we're looking for, uh, or, or incline as we go through it um, is what we're looking for. But that can be very difficult to find, and it can be difficult to find the, the correct distance on it as well. You might have that level of incline, but do you have it for 25, 30, 35, 40 meters? You know, and, and honestly, that's kind of what we're looking for. Something that's just uh, 10 yards or 10 meters in distance probably isn't going to be enough uh, for what we're trying to get out of it. Something that I feel like is the most accessible is band-resisted sprinting. And, and there's a reason why um, I prefer to use bands. So for us in our facility, we'll typically use uh, the super bands that we purchase from Perform Better. Um, we'll tie two of those together. Um, I don't like using one band. One, it's tough to resist it if you are the athlete on the back. Um, and two, it just it creates too much tension. We need two bands in order to um, kind of create uh, a little more uh, dispersion of that force. So the, one of the reasons why I really like using the bands is one, if I'm on it, I can control how quickly the athlete is moving. Uh, I very rarely stick another athlete on the other end of it. The other reason why I like it is as we're going through our, our sprint, our acceleration, we are trying to create 
a forward movement through a horizontal force that we're creating behind us. Well, with that band, it's going to create that force pulling back on us. And so as we're going through the acceleration, there's going to be some period of the acceleration between each step where we create a little bit of a flight phase. Well, that band by always pulling us back is going to start to slow the momentum that we have moving forward. So it's almost like it's pulling us backward into that next step. It's creating additional load on that foot, which we're not going to get if we're running up a hill, if we're running with a sled. You know, if you're going through a sled resisted run, that sled is, it's got its own forward momentum. And so it's going to carry with you. So if you're in that flight phase of that stride, the sled's still moving forward as well. You know, if you're doing an uphill run, gravity is pulling you down. It's not necessarily pulling you backward. So in that flight phase, you're fighting the urge of gravity pulling you toward the ground, not it pulling you backwards. And so again, one of the reasons why I feel like bands are kind of optimal for this is because it's slowing that forward momentum and adding to that load on that ankle complex when we hit the ground. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I really like using that tool as opposed to some of the others. Um, Steve, you've got a little more background with the 1080 and the run rockets. I've watched you guys use both of them in the facility. How would you kind of compare and contrast those two? Um, and, and how would you, um, I guess, how would you implement those maybe for different populations in your facility uh, or compare those to, to like the band resisted runs? You know, again, I, I don't have the same context with it. I, maybe the bands are better for some of the younger athletes, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, for us, the 1080 obviously is like our champion. Like it wins, no doubt. The, the ability to have such a smooth resistance that you can set the exact level of resistance and then have it track exactly what's going on with your athlete is so beneficial. And if you're able to run force velocity profiles on your athletes, there's some really cool quote unquote research, it's a little bit more anecdotal with what the exact percentages of their output should be that you train at. So for instance, there's some talk of in your early acceleration, if you can load it up so that their speed is 50% of their speed without resistance, that would be a great level to train at for maybe one to 10, 15 yards. And then you can bring it down to maybe 30 to 25% if you're extending beyond that distance, and then it should go down to 10. And with the 1080, you can actually set variable resistances on that so that in their first five yards, or it's at their ability to get up to maybe five meters per second, there's a certain resistance. Then from five to seven meters per second, there's another resistance, and then it drops all the way down once they've hit a certain threshold to that there's no resistance at all to better work on like an actual smooth transition of your acceleration to top end speed. Most of the time when we have resistance, you're almost keeping yourself in a certain drive phase of a sprint. It's dictated just on how heavy that resistance is. The band, obviously you can control it and lessen it up as you're going, but it's not as exact. We're kind of relying on our feel a little bit more. The run rocket is nice because it's really smooth for being able to do multiple resistances for many athletes at the same time. And it kind of can rotate pretty quickly. Um, and that's why we kind of use it in our facility. We like that. So the athletes, we can kind of set the tension pre-sprint. We can organize them. Let's say maybe three athletes are a little bit smaller. We set that run rocket a certain kind of resistance. Then we go into like a medium group and then a heavy group. So that groups can kind of have like their own resistance levels that are preset. 
Um, the run rockets are nice because then at the end of it, they just kind of trot back in. They take the belt off. The next person can line up. You can organize groups of, if we have four run rockets going, groups of 12 can train pretty nicely with a pretty solid, consistent rest period as well. You know, and that's, that's one of our big benefits for that. It allows a very smooth resistance. It's not very jerky. And like you mentioned with the sled, there's not that idea where like you've created momentum. So they're, you're losing the resistance as you're going, it won't continue on. So that's going to be more similar to the 1080, just, it's not able to track everything. The resistance setting is a little bit, again, based on coaches feel and more of what we're seeing is what we're determining. The resistance should be on that one. And then we use those exergenies as well when we're outdoors, which just has a, uh, an anchor point that two ropes go through as one athlete pulls on one side of the rope, the other side kind of comes towards the anchor. Then when the athlete's done, they unhook, then the athlete sets up on the other rope and it pulls it back. So it's just kind of like a pulley system. And we use those in the facility maybe nine years ago. That was what we used. Um, but then we started moving into the run rockets and then we moved into the 1080 now. But outside, it works great because you can kind of anchor it around a tree and then you're able to still train many athletes at the same time, just providing some sort of smooth resistance level. Um, just the bands are also something we'll use for a variety of the actions as well. But that's kind of how we kind of have our progression going. All the things that we're talking about right now are those options that really allow the body to have a smooth resistance and the arms and legs to move in rhythm. That was one of the things that we felt like with just pure sled work, it got awkward. One, the sled has momentum. If you're pushing the sled, your arms aren't involved. Um, and it just wasn't as smooth of a setup for many of our athletes when we were trying to do the sled work. And that's why we kind of switched it around the way that we value those um, resistance options. Sure. Now, is there, you know, with, with the different age and level of athletes, is there a progression of implements that you guys move through or is there something specific that you need to see, whether it's an age or uh, a strength capacity before they can get onto certain implements or will you guys even put some of your youngest athletes on, on like a 1080? Yeah, we, we play around, I loosely say play around, but like some of our athletes we can trust, they're maybe even 10 years old. I have a, an eight-year-old that I've put on the 1080 because I put it at like a one kilogram, two kilogram, three kilogram resistance. It feels like nothing. But I was curious to just see like, would he understand seeing his own graph? He Would he like that? You know, he really responded well to it actually because I would tell him what he got meters per second wise as his speed. And he's like, well, what should I do? I'm like, try to get faster, see what you can do. And then you get faster. You know, with young athletes sometimes, they don't understand actually trying hard. And so the idea of the 1080 on him was really good. And the resistance is so low that it's not really messing with his form at all. We don't have groups use the 1080 unless they're really in that high school age. And if they're more of our serious athletes, just because it, it takes a little bit of focus, you need to be conscious of what's around you. Um, it's one of our most expensive pieces of equipment in our facility. And so we don't want to haphazardly just have kids that may be a little silly and rambunctious utilizing that for the time. Mm -hmm. The run rockets will let younger athletes get on those. Um, and I think it more built from when we first got the new devices, we weren't completely sure how well they could be utilized with certain populations. And then the more that we trained with them, we started to understand different, maybe complexes we could do with them where maybe the athlete does a short sprint with it, walks back, takes it off, then does a far sprint. 
we always don't want to have log jams with our younger athletes. And that's one of our biggest concerns. The resistance itself, because it's so changeable, it's, it's not too much. You know, we have a harder time, honestly, with bands with our younger athletes, because if we're not able to resist each one in the group, because we have groups of maybe six, you know, like it gets a little sloppy pretty quickly on that. And the same with the sleds. Um, at times we'll use the sleds, but then why we don't use them as much is the facility. If we have a bunch of sleds out there, it takes up a lot of room in the facility. So it's kind of like that, that context piece as to why we're not utilizing it. Not necessarily because they're too young to use certain things. I think the sled's great because it helps lock them in and they can just work on driving and creating great force vectors. I think that's fantastic. It doesn't always work just with the facility space we have. So the run rockets work really nice for the same idea. And we're just a little bit more patient with them. And that's kind of one of our big things. When you guys are utilizing equipment, how do you kind of progress for those younger athletes to the older athletes? Yeah, so we're going to start with, uh, you know, the, the sled push is going to be one of the first things that our athletes are going to go through. You know, we're going to go through our wall drill. Then we'll get on the sled. We'll start with a sled march, a sled a run, um, and then we'll get into our acceleration work. Sled towing will actually be done once they've been six, nine weeks in the program. Now, I'm not a big fan of the sled towing only because, um, you know, a, a couple of reasons. You can either tow uh, at the waist. Um, and so if you have that belt around your waist, you know, one of the issues that we came across was one, dictating the weight that's going to go on the sled um, because that general 10% rule isn't always the best for everybody. Uh, the other piece is it's, uh, because of where it's at on the body, if I have an athlete that is struggling to get their hips through, they're constantly fighting that in order to get into that position. Uh, on the other side of things, we can put them in the shoulder harness, uh, but then it causes them to come up out of that acceleration a little quicker than I would like. So we don't do as much sled towing as we used to, uh, or sled sprinting as in a tow as we used to. Um, but you know, that that's kind of where we would put that in there. Now the band resisted sprints, these are, um, drills that we're going to use typically once they're about five or six weeks into the program, that's typically about how long it's going to take us to get into at least the first couple of steps of our acceleration progression, you know, going from a tall position, athletic, getting into our staggered and then single leg drills, then we'll start to incorporate uh, some of those band resisted sprints. And we're going to start out, you know, just over a 10 yard span for four to six reps. Uh, but as they get further into the program, usually about week nine, um, we're going to start going 15 and 20 yard accelerations uh, to get them used to holding that position position over a period of time. Uh, the other piece with the bands is it's easy to do in large group settings. So like if I'm in the high school and we're, you know, working with the football team there, it's easy enough for me to go through, uh, you know, 20 or 30 athletes in a band resisted sprint, um, as opposed to having enough sleds or run rockets or in any other tool. Um, and so for our high school strength conditioning coaches, you know, that, that band resisted sprint tends to be the most realistic for them. Yeah, without a doubt. I think that's the idea when, when I, you got to understand where you're training at, how many athletes you have, and then kind of like what would be the most ideal, and then really kind of breaking that down. In our facility, because we have so many tools at our disposal, it's pretty easy to choose from. But when we pivoted to outdoor training, it became either we're doing bands or we're going to go exergenies. You know, those yeah. were our two options. And for the entire summer, 
we mixed in both just to provide unique stimuluses, you know, especially for if you're only outside working with your athletes, it can get a little bit bland when they're used to being in the facility and having access to all these different devices that we have in there. Right. And that was really our thought process when we really started incorporating those exergenies outside was that we wanted to kind of mix up the stimulus for our athletes, mentally just kind of keeping them fresh and engaged. Sure, sure, absolutely. So when you're going through some of those uh, resisted sprint drills, what are, what are you cueing your athletes on? What is, the, what is their focus? What do they feel like they need to be doing in order to get the most out of that drill? Yeah, I think we always start with just posture as number one. And for our younger athletes, obviously, even in acceleration, they're more upright. But trying to create from the top of the head, through the hip, through the heel on the support leg, just have as straight of a line as possible. You know, like that, for us, that's so huge just so we can really control those force vectors. If they're breaking at the hips, if they're breaking at the knee, if they're rounding their upper backs, we're just minimizing and leaking energy all over the place. So our posture is our number one, even if it means they have to be more vertical than ideal, that's fine. You know, and then the next thing is front side, front side, front side, front side, front side. I think that I wear myself out saying front side and toe up in front because I'll coach that excessively. And the two things I always say to my athletes is if you can get your foot up in front of you, you have potential to put better force into the ground and create better power and you have better balance along the way. No one really stumbles because their feet are too up in front of them. Usually they stumble because their torso is falling over in front of themselves, almost like they're falling downhill when you try to really do a downhill sprint. And those are the foundations for our youth athletes who are eight all the way through our NFL clients. Because when we're doing marching, when we're doing skipping, when we're doing acceleration A runs, like high knee runs or H runs, whatever the terminology that you prefer, it's always about that straight line, head through heel, front side, knee up in front, toe up in front, striving to get that knee above the hip if possible, if it's an acceleration drill. And just challenging how big that thigh split we can create. That's our foundation for sure. And it feels like right when you want to get away from that, you have to come back into it and revisit it again. You know, how about for you guys, Nick, what are your big, uh, like, let's say like big blocks of the, the foundations for those drills? Yeah. So I, I think similar to you guys, we're going to start out with, with posture, making sure they're in the right position, um, making sure that as we come up into that stride, we want to get front side, but we also don't want to cast. So we don't want to allow that knee to begin to extend the foot to reach out. And typically what I see happening is our athletes want to pull us. They're trying to, because uh, again, we're typically on the bands. And so they're trying to pull us as fast as they can down the track. And so one of the things that I talk to them about is, you know, we want to maintain that same acceleration position. Don't worry about your speed because I'm going to dictate the speed based on how fast I move down the track. So you worry about getting the knee up in front, toe pointed up, and just driving the foot down into the track. Now, we know that the uh, ground contact time, which we talked about in our last episode, is going to be a little bit greater in, in resisted sprints. And that's okay. That's what we want. In order to have a greater force, we have to apply the force over a longer amount of time. So I'm not as worried about that as long as it doesn't change our foot interaction with the ground. So I don't want more of the foot on the ground than what there was in their typical acceleration. I don't want the foot falling. I don't want the heel falling down. I don't want to be rolling to the outside of the foot if that's what 
they weren't doing uh, beforehand. And so I want to try and make sure that we have the same foot contact that we did before. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I spend a lot of time focusing on is, you know, what does our interaction with the ground look like? What does our front side mechanic look like? Are we able to get up in front without reaching out? Um, and then, you know, just kind of uh, assessing and evaluating and making sure that the, the resistance is not affecting uh, the form or the position. Yeah. I know that we always will incorporate, even with these drills and these sprints early on that are resisted, immediately kind of contrasting into just a sprint so you can try to feel it into that sprint. Because I think that one of the dangers that I have seen is when you do too much drill work with heavy resistance without actually letting your athletes run, it does start to mess with it. And all of a sudden they're on the ground forever in the beginning. And you're like, well, why are they running like that? And it's like, well, you just buried them underneath resistance. They're just trying to drag through, like they're pulling a bus behind them and they never tried to run without it. So you never had the opportunity to really try to apply that greater nervous system engagement to apply more force. It just has changed the pattern completely, you know? And now when you guys have used sleds, you mentioned the 10% rule, which has been commonly used. Can you describe that and maybe any other loading protocols that you guys abide by? Sure. So, you know, with, with the sled, uh, again, it's, it's been uh, said before that you should use 10% of your body weight if you're going through a sled toe. Uh, now, that's, I think that's a, a good place to start. Uh, but I think especially as you get into your older athletes, your high school collegiate athletes, um, I've seen that number grow as high as 30, 35% of their body weight and still be able to maintain a good position. Uh, now, if we're going into sled pushing, um, we're able to really increase that uh, up over 100% of their body weight. Um, now, like I said, we, do a, we spend a lot of time using bands and our band resisted work. Uh, and we like to use uh, both the um, one inch, the uh, one and one quarter and the one and a half inch super bands uh, that we do get from Perform Better. Um, and like I said, we're going to put two of those bands together as we're going through our sprints. Um, and, and we dictate the, um, the resistance of the band or, or the um, size of the band based on the strength of the athlete. Um, and so, you know, just to give you a, a general idea, if we have athletes, uh, these are typically our younger athletes, but if we have athletes that uh, are relegated to uh, goblet squats, two kettlebell front squats, uh, or they're front squatting with a load that's less than half their body weight, they're typically going to be doing band resisted sprints with a one inch band. Now, if they're able to do a front squat with more than 50% of their body weight, we're able to move them up to one and a quarter inch band. Um, and we'll keep them there for a period of time. And usually, usually it's the athletes that are front squatting uh, one and a half or above of their body weight that are up on that one and a half inch band. Um, and these are just very general uh, rules. And this is something that, you know, it's not that the front squat's that important or it has that much of a carryover into the sprint, but it's one of the drills that we do most often with all of our athletes that we were able to say, okay, this is going to work or it's not going to work. Uh, but, you know, as a general rule of thumb, that's typically how we're going to get set up. I like that. I know one of the ways that we incorporate the resistance is the idea that if we kind of loosely measure a 10 yard sprint 
And then we try to have the resistance so that their sprint is 150% of that time. To say, if they run 10 yards in one second, can we resist them so it takes them 1.5 seconds? Mm -hmm. That's going to be an appropriate load that we're trying to challenge them with. With the idea of still being speed development, and I think that's a critical piece too when we're talking about loading schemes, because there's times where we'll load very heavy, but that's more of a strength in mechanics loading. It's not truly speed development. Right. And that was actually something I just did with one of our NFL athletes was his power block of his lift on Thursday was pretty heavy 1080 sprints. It wasn't that he was going to do cleans or anything like that. We put him at a resistance that made him run at a certain speed that we wanted. And that's what he did for six sets was just these 10 yard sprints with the dictated resistance level. And that was going to be power by no means was that the correct load for his speed training because it was a little bit uh, high, but it was a good one for the training stimulus for sure. And then the force velocity profiling takes it to like the next scientific level where you're really trying to determine what those loads are. And I know I reference coach Matt often, but he's one that's really been trying to apply those percentages with certain athletes. The thing that's difficult though, is when you have very, very, very strong athletes, it's difficult to create enough load for those athletes. Mm-hmm. So when we have our combine prep guys, they're pretty much maxing it out and it was barely getting to their 50% capacity just really strong individuals. For the most part, our high school athletes, no problem. But I have a couple division one football players that are seniors in high school. And again, they're challenging how heavy we can actually create it. And they're still running well and they're running fast when we're doing those loads. But that's kind of more what we try to utilize is that idea of that 150% of your sprint time is that's gonna be an appropriate load. Oftentimes it's a little heavier than you think it might be actually when you get that stopwatch out and do it again. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's great. So what are um, for you guys, what are some of the desired outcomes? Obviously we're all trying to, to get faster, to improve our, our time. But I know for us, you know, one of the reasons why we like to use this resisted sprint training is um, one, it helps me to teach athletes how to get into and hold an acceleration position for a long period of time. Because again, when they're on the bands, I can say to them, listen, I'm going to hold you in this position. I just need you to worry about driving out and just keep driving out. Um, you know, again, one of the other reasons is, uh, I talked about the knee extending the foot casting out. A lot of times that will happen because athletes are just trying to catch themselves. They don't want to fall to the ground. And so they're using that foot back down on the ground as a base of support. And so there are times where we will use a band resisted or a resisted sprint in order to just help them understand that acceleration position. So sometimes it's, it's a positional outcome that we're looking for. Um, but what are some of the outcomes that you guys are looking for as you're going through those band resisted sprints outside of just increased speed development? Yeah. The phase one of our training is all about that skill development. And that's exactly what you're just touching on is just those positional improvements. And a lot of times I'll try to talk to the athletes about why are we doing this heavy resisted action right now? And they'll say to get faster. I'm like, not at all. That's not what we're doing right now. And the idea is you're able to replicate the exact same angle of force into the ground, posture, everything for maybe 15 consecutive steps. 
And in a true sprint, it never happens because you're always raising up slightly as you're going. And so you're not really hitting the same step multiple times. And that's why there's so much value about some resistance that is heavy enough to make you come out really, really low. So you can feel that really, really low angle of launch, a little bit less, or we position them on the sled a little higher. And now they're feeling more of that transitional posture. And then you have kind of your top end speed with a little bit of resistance. And that's going to allow you to feel where you're more tall in that. But it's so much of just feeling positions for more than one step. So you can actually kind of groove it. And love doing the marching actions in front of the mirror to create that visual feel connection where they can see their position in the mirror and then feel it. So they become more aware, especially as we move in those later phases, when we're giving cueing kind of on the fly, they can remember what it felt like. I think that's so important too, is that they're just kind of creating this idea where their muscles kind of understand positions by slowing it down intentionally to feel it. And then in that next phase, a lot of our resisted work is trying to develop strength within those postures. And so we kind of may be either adding resistance or taking resistance away, depending on what we needed to do to get them in the right postures. But we're really trying to groove rhythm now in that phase two, where their speed should be faster. They won't be the same as unresisted, but it's a great rhythm. Like Nick, you were talking about the foot striking the ground consistently the same way. And we're really looking for those things to happen. So in that second kind of phase of our training, we're looking for a lot of that strength within those mechanics. And hopefully they're going to start to have some sort of speed improvement then because they're getting a little stronger, their posture is better. More often than not, that will help most of our athletes just run a little faster. Then in that last phase, that's more where we're talking about potentiation type activities, where that resistance is really designing to try and get the CNF hyperactivated to elicit a faster than normal response when they attempt a sprint. So that's where we might have those little complexes of a sprint with a bound, a med ball throw with a heavy sprint, then a contrast sprint. But it's really to try to get them to break through some sort of speed barrier. And that's really what we're looking for. And then when we are doing that, if there's blatant issues, then we go back to maybe what that phase one intent was of cleaning up something posturally that's holding them back from breaking through now. And with that in mind, we're talking about eight to 12 weeks into training is now we're at that point. That's, that's not going to be week two for many of our athletes, if any ever, you know, like unless they've been training off and on pretty consistently. And it's just this two week period before track season where they're trying to hit something again, more often than not, they've got to get through these other phases to then be able to really potentiate a sprint that well. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's phenomenal. And this is, you know, again, this is a topic that um, I feel like we could go on about for, for a while. And uh, just because of the, the different uses for it, you know, just like we were just discussing, um, it's not necessarily always about speed development. Sometimes it's just about our, our ability to um, get into proper positions, to take advantage of, of those positions, to uh, expose our body to a different stimuli. And so um, often we're using this same tool for, for multiple uses. I love it, Nick. And the, the next thing that we're going to touch on today is our leadership component. And we, we discussed this one a little bit off air, and I'm excited for Nick to share a little bit about his own story um, within this, this idea of if I'm introverted or I'm extroverted. You know, a lot of people kind of put themselves in these boxes. Many of us are kind of floating in between those. But as a leader, oftentimes 
we put these dynamic personalities on a pedestal. That's what I need to be. In reality, there's great leaders all across the spectrum. But what does it look like to you if you do feel like you're a little introverted? So Nick, like, share a little bit about like your personal kind of identity and how you kind of feel that you're challenged or things you do intentionally to succeed. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like often when you get into, and, and I run into this a lot with our interns, often when we get into the realm of coaching, uh, we feel like we have to be this extroverted, loud, um, uh, just in your face type person. And so uh, I think outside of strength conditioning, many people feel like leaders have to be that way too. And leaders have to be um, just always at the front, always speaking, always, uh, you know, always having a message for individuals. Uh, and at times it is that way. You know, I would, I would say, especially over the last year, it has been that way for a lot of individuals and a lot of companies. Um, but that it doesn't necessarily have to be just the extrovert personality who does that. Um, you know, for myself, I, I would categorize myself as an introvert. Um, you know, if you guys have not uh, read the book Quiet by Susan Cain, I think that there is a lot of great content in there. Um, but really, introverts and extroverts are uh, categorized by how they recharge. It's not necessarily what you like to do or um, where you find yourself, but it's how do you recharge at the end of the day? And for me, I recharge when I'm on my own, when I'm studying, when I'm reading, uh, if I'm spending time with my family, as opposed to when I'm out and doing things and in large group settings. Uh, whereas I know other coaches that I've worked with that that's where they get their energy. They feel the best when they are in front of people, when they're in, when they are in front of groups or talking to parents. Um, and so I think the first thing to understand is there isn't a right or wrong. And just because you're an introvert doesn't mean that you can't lead. And just because you're an extrovert doesn't mean that you have to lead. Um, so one, I think it's recognizing that uh, both personality types have opportunities, uh, but don't have to be forced into a certain area. Um, so you know, one, I think that as a leader, you have to recognize what you are, but then you also need to recognize what your, um, the individuals that are around you, what they are, you know, whether they are uh, your employees or your coworkers or the athletes that you work with, um, because there are going to be times where you need to help them to be able to recharge and to be ready. Um, you know, so I, I feel like there is uh, a large level of self-awareness here, uh, but also there's gotta be a level of empathy for the individuals that are around us. You know, in a time like right now, I was just reading a study, um, I think it was, uh, or an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, just talking about the level of fatigue and burnout in employees over the last year. Um, and even the individuals that are working from home, there is just so much uh, on people's minds, on their shoulders, um, just stress that is going on. And not necessarily because the work is harder. There are, there are times where the work is harder. However, it's, it's the level of anxiety that they're dealing with just because of how much is going on. You know, I, I can tell you that I personally right now deal with a lot of anxiety just because of uh, the amount of stress that, that we have uh, with what we're doing from a day-to-day -day standpoint. And they're all good things. We have a lot of really great things going on. However, 
I don't have a point in the day where my mind stops. You know, I'm always bouncing from this to that to, you know, what do I need to be doing here? Uh, who's the next person I need to talk to? Um, and that it, it takes a, a large toll on your body. And so, again, I think it's understanding who you are, what you need, uh, understanding the individuals that are around you, and then giving them the opportunities to receive what they need. You know, if you know that you are uh, on a staff of other introverts, I hope that you're, you're creating and scheduling some time for them to get away and just do their own things. And that's not necessarily just the end of the day, but they need time in the day to be able to just have some quiet, have some peace. Uh, whereas if they're extroverts, maybe you need to be scheduling some additional time uh, for them to speak with someone or for them to be in front of a group or, you know, but figuring out what those individuals need that help them to recharge, that help them to feel good. Um, so, you know, the other piece to this is um, how does this impact our opportunities? You know, and so uh, as a leader, is this going to have an impact on our opportunities and what we can do? Um, and so, you know, I, I think that it's, um, again, it, it comes with this level of self-awareness. If you know where you are at on this spectrum and how you operate best, then typically it's easiest to know what opportunities you want to go after and what opportunities fit you best, but also knowing how to prepare for those. Um, and so I, I think that this is, is crucial um, just so that, you know, I feel like especially as we are trying to attain these certain levels of success, we feel like success comes in one way. You know, we have to do it the way that this other individual did it. We have to follow the same path that they followed. Um, and so there are times where we feel like we have to take opportunities that may not be the best for us. Um, and so, you know, really paying attention to, uh, you know, what, what you thrive with, what you, the, the situations you thrive under, um, and then making sure that you are uh, pursuing those opportunities that fit you best. Um, so Steve, for, for you, you know, I know that uh, you have a number of individuals that, that you work with on a daily basis. Um, how do you see this impacting you guys as a group, but also the individuals that are within the group? Um, you know, one, recognizing kind of where they fall, but also the, the situations and the opportunities they find themselves in. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to navigate for sure. The biggest thing that you have to start with as the leader is connecting with them to really understand this. And this is what we've a theme we've touched on so many times now about really listening and hearing the people you're guiding. And if this is your staff, you, if, if you as an introvert yourself, it doesn't come naturally. You have to be intentional about the things you want to touch in, in, in these meetings, you know, and you need to understand and kind of pull from them the things that give them a little anxiety, the things that they're struggling with, the things that they do that helps them feel the best. And you may have to write all those things down so you know that as you're kind of knowing that this is a time where a lot of the things going on are going to be leaning into that person's anxiety to just touch base with them. Like Nick said, touch base and say, Hey, why don't you take Saturday and go do this? Cause I know that that's something you'd love to do. You know, it's difficult for my own self at times because I'm a little bit more extroverted when I am out coaching. Um, and that might feel a little bit more like a magnetic personality. If you're in the facility, I am one of those louder individuals, 
Nick might be able to attest to that when he's visited us. But I'm loud, but I want it to be fun. It's not loud for the, in the sake of loud. It's just laughing and joking with the people. And you can feel kind of the energy building around the group that I'm working with. And I love that feeling. And that's what I could do over and over and over and over and over. You know, that, that's how I do nine or 10 hours in a row is the energy I kind of create within those hours. As soon as that last one ends, though, I feel sometimes like I'm a little bit more on the introverted side then. And it's not that I'm being fake during that, that time I'm coaching. It's that that really is giving me energy. And I could just keep going. I don't need to drink water sometimes. I don't need to eat if I'm just rolling. And I just, I'm just in the zone. But then when I get out of there, sometimes like the last thing that I'd like to do is like talk to someone else now. It's like, all right, this ride home, I'm just going to chill out and just kind of like let my body just recover from all that. If it is somebody I'm going to talk to, it needs to be someone that's definitely going to recharge my batteries. It can't necessarily be somebody else that needs something from me. It needs to be something different than that. And it might be like Nick and I connect and it's just, hey, how's the week going? You know, that's not a point where we're going to lean on each other for something, you know, versus if I'm calling a coach that needs something from me and I got to continue to be on again to be able to answer questions, have my brain kind of cycling through everything that I want to go through with this individual, creating a great experience for them. You know, that's, that's one of those hard things that when you have too much of that going on, definitely I can feel where that fatigue comes from and that burnout feeling comes from is you got to understand just what you need. Now, for me, I don't normally need a weekend. I don't need a day. It's like if I get two hours, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, man, I feel like I should be doing something. I'm, I'm good now. Like, I feel like I got all this energy back. And that's just for my own self. But I can't then because that's me. I can't assume that my other coaches feel the same way, you know, and when they ask me questions about how are you able to train that many hours, I can't just say, well, obviously like it's fun. I have to understand that for them, it might drain them of energy to really out of their way, try to be a little bit bigger than they normally would be for the sake of that session. And it's what their athlete needs from them in that moment, you know, and I think that's a piece of when you choose to be in a leadership position even as a coach, no matter what level, you're choosing to lead at least one individual at a time. And when you choose to lead someone else, it's not always what's best for me. It's what is my athlete? What is my coach? What is this person that I'm interacting with? What do they need me to be right now for them to have the best experience? And I think that's the piece that when we choose to be in these leadership positions, we're going into it with the understanding that there might be moments that are uncomfortable for us naturally, but we have to be self-aware enough to say, it's not about me because I'm choosing to do this. You know, if I wanted to really lean into just being an introvert the whole day, then I should be doing data entry at a cubicle all by myself, right? That I can lean into it. Then I don't have to worry about reaching outside of myself, but I want to impact others. I have to do it. It won't be the same as the guy that's naturally extroverted and a little bit more magnetic personality wise in a big group, but you're still doing things intentionally to make an impact for that, that individual that you're working with. And I think that's a, a big piece is just when you have that self-awareness, you can't just say, well, I'm introverted. That's why it went that way. It's that, no, I'm introverted. So I have to do this, this, and this to make sure their experience is great. And then I need to do this, this, and this, so I can recharge so I can do that again. And it may be that I can only train three hours in a row and then I need 30 minutes to just go in my car to have a, have a smoothie, 
eat a little food and then I can come back in and crush it again. That's fine. But know that, put it on your schedule and then make sure that you create a great experience the rest of the day after you take that break. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's phenomenal. Um, so, you know, we, we, the last piece that I want to talk about today uh, on the business segment is, and we've addressed this a little bit in the past, is the relationship side. And so um, understanding the importance of relationships from a business standpoint. Uh, and again, we've addressed this in the past, but there are a couple of specific situations that I want to address. Um, and so, you know, this can be any of the individuals that you are with. So whether it's uh, your coworkers, whether it's your athletes, the parents, the coaches that are around you, um, understanding that those relationships are extremely important. Uh, obviously, and if you're on the business side, you, you understand that. Uh, but even in the public sector, if you are doing uh, any type of work in schools or the community or anything like that, um, you know, the, these relationships can provide an extreme level of importance. So to give you guys a, a couple of examples, you know, for us, we are going through a couple of changes within our facility, um, you know, looking at uh, things to the facility itself, looking at different areas within the community where we can have an impact. Um, and the more that we're having conversations with the individuals around us, those individuals want to step up and they want to help us. They have uh, either connections or they know people. Um, and so they want to help in some way by connecting us to those other individuals or uh, by somehow giving of their resources. The other piece to this um, is just making sure that we are, uh, we have good relationships with the other people in our field. You know, uh, I was telling Steve before we, we came on air here, um, there are a couple of strength conditioning coaches here in the city uh, that refer clients our way, you know, just because they know that if the client's true goal is to gain uh, speed, to be faster in their sport, and they have something that uh, there's a larger impact there. So for individuals who may be training for a pro day or they're getting ready for the combine, they will send them our way. Uh, and that, that comes from a long relationship that I've had with that coach. And they are a tremendous strength and conditioning coach, but they just appreciate what we do. Um, and so, you know, it's making sure that we have that positive relationship uh, with that individual. Um, you know, obviously those relationships are important with the skill coaches that are out there, you know, making sure that we're working with them and, and understanding our role. You know, my role is not uh, to be a um, skill coach for basketball players. My role is not to talk about, you know, the uh, swing for baseball or throwing mechanics in baseball. That's not what I do. But if you're going to send them to us for strength training or speed development, we're going to help in any way that we can. Now, what I think is really um, important in all of these relationships is what we have done to get to this point. There have been many, many years of giving into those uh, in order to receive anything from it. And so, you know, again, I know that we've, we've referenced this book before on the podcast, Jab, Jab, Right Hook by Gary Vaynerchuk. He talks about this. Those jabs are, you know, what we are constantly depositing into the relationship. So the coaches that I work with, um, 
coming out and doing free speed sessions with them, doing free arm care sessions for uh, the baseball coaches, for our parents and our athletes. You know, it's the content that we're constantly putting out, whether the things that we're putting on social media or the blogs that we write that are answering the questions that they always have, um, you know, giving them information on their athletes and how they're doing. Uh, you know, if it's the other strength conditioning coaches that are here around the city, if we're offering some level of continuing education, helping them to be a part of that. If we know other individuals that are coming into the into the uh, vicinity to just tour and to visit, so say college coaches that are in town for games, connecting them with those other strength conditioning coaches to help them to meet up. Um, new coaches that are moving to town. So I had a, a coach who just moved here from Iowa who took a job with a local university, connecting him to some of the other strength conditioning coaches here in the city. Um, and so, you know, helping them, helping to get them connected, helping them to, to receive information. Um, and then when they feel like they have something to offer, it's much easier to do so um, because, you know, we've been providing for so long. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's understanding that uh, these relationships can be very beneficial, but you've got to be feeding into them uh, for a period of time before you're ever going to get anything out of that. Uh, now, Steve, I know for you guys up at TC Boost, you've had some opportunities like this in the past uh, where, you know, certain relationships have, have led to other opportunities uh, or they have led to, you know, the, the ability to work with different groups. Uh, but what are some of the, the experiences that you've had with this? You know, one that just is happening yesterday was uh, Lewis Sauer Golf is a golf pro that runs a facility that's right next door to us. And we always have a fantastic relationship with him. And over the course of the last maybe three, four months, I've been writing programming for him. It's nothing that's crazy, but it allows him to come into the facility. He works out when he's got some downtime from the facility that he's training out of. And what it allows then is he always trusts us if there's something he wants to do on the strength or speed side relative to golf, you know, and it doesn't have to be that I write golf specific training for him. It's just that I take care of him as a person. I care about him as a person. And so he texted me Saturday morning. He's like, Hey, I'd love to do some like videos and like a little blog about maybe some mobility exercises and different strength and speed things you guys do that carry over to golf. I was like, awesome. Let's, let's do it. That's like a really easy one. But along the way, like, I don't even know the last time I talked to him about doing something like that. You know, it was just because I like him as a person. We have a good time when we talk, when he's in the facility and I write programming for him just to kind of help him stay strong and healthy as he goes. And that's like a really easy thing as a strength coach. And sometimes in those types of relationships is if it's somebody that you really, really trust and you're just kind of helping them along in some way or another, that goes a long way. You know, um, with our actual adult clientele, trying to lean into them as much as possible for like their services they offer and paying for those services. Like we have one of our adult clients, he has a roofing company. So anytime that anyone needs roofing or windows or some light remodeling, he's my first person that I offer as a referral. If it's at my house, I'll go with that person, you know, and it's worth it in the long term even if the price is a little higher than maybe some quote you got because of the goodwill and because you care about that person as well. You know, right now 
I'm actually using Lane Norton's uh, nutrition app, the carbon diet app, you know, but it's $10 for the month. And I said, you know what, like I've done other apps. I've tried different ones. I've done Renaissance periodizations app, but I kind of, I believe in those guys. And so if I'm going to use an app, I'll, I'll throw the $10 their way. And then I let them know like, Hey, I just appreciate the content that you provide and I know what you're doing. And so I want to let you know that I'm utilizing your app for this time period, you know, and that's almost on the other side of the fence where they've provided such great content for me that I want to utilize them when I'm making that choice. And it's the same thing as a coach on my end is I want to provide as much valuable content for people. So if they do choose, they're going to choose me uh, to be either their, their coach or their speed coach or their strength coach for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, the other piece to this too is always looking for ways to form new relationships. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we actually had a, um, experience here lately where one of our coaches was out on a golf course and he happened to get paired up with somebody. And this individual used is, um, a director on one of the large baseball organizations down here. Um, and so, you know, now it, it looks like we may be able to form some type of partnership just because of, you know, that opportunity of him being willing to just have a conversation on a day off where he's out and golfing and, and doing his own thing. Um, but the other piece too is, is searching these relationships out. So one thing that I try and do regularly is to just see who any of the new strength conditioning coaches here are here in the city, um, but also in the state and to reach out to them anytime they accept a new position or they move into the state from somewhere else. Um, to reach out, to offer to visit them, spend time with them, um, and just uh, see how I can help them. You know, typically if we're moving into a new role, or especially if we're moving into a new city, we're looking for some assistance. You know, whether it's learning the area, learning the school, learning what's gone on there in the past, uh, learning anything that we may know about uh, the, the decision makers that are in that area. Um, and so just offering almost automatically, as soon as they get into that area, uh, to any assistance that we may be able to. Um, because again, we know that when we're going into those new situations, those uh, new positions, that it can be a little nerve wracking at times because we don't know what we're doing. And so um, just making sure that, you know, we're, we're offering to help out as much as possible. Um, and, and again, always looking for those, those new opportunities that are around us. Yeah. I know one interesting one for TC boost as a small story is there's a local company that their owner and our owner have both been in the game for, I don't know, 15 plus years. And it started out where they were like the first two, the OGs in the area that nobody else was even competition at the time, as far as offering a sports performance style training. And, you know, like there's moments along the way where, oh man, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are we doing? Is it good? Uh, what should we doing more like they do? Should we not? And over the course of time, getting more comfortable about what your value is to athletes and understanding on our end that we have really gone all in on the speed component of it. There were those moments along the way where are we going to try to offer some skills stuff if we connect with the right guys? And, you know, the, the process of going through that, similarly, when we talked about the pricing options or new facility options, you got to really go through it and say, like, is this worth 
the effort and time it's going to take to set this up. Or, you know what, I'm just going to really double down on what I'm already doing really well. And we've come to a nice point where we've doubled down on what we're doing really, really well. And that facility that at one point was a competitor, you'd say, now we partnered with them for this last combine prep where they handled skill work and they handled the uh, lifting side of it. And we did the speed component of it. And it's just like a small story to share. You never know what's going to happen five years from now. When that first person moved into town and you reached out to them, they may have looked at you as a, a competitor that they had to try and reach at some point, but we don't know how things change over the next five years. It might be actually somebody that you lean into for a specific service they offer where you can partner together. And that's where that intentionality of just openly going in to offer conversation, hear their stories, will set you up down the road to something you'd even know was going to come your way. And I'll even reference Nick and I's journey together. The fact that we kind of met through the NHS SCA. Nick knew of TC Boost because he trained an athlete down in New Orleans that had been at TC Boost for his combine prep. When he just randomly yelled out TC Boost as I was walking down a hallway. And I had no idea that anybody even knew what TC Boost was. And then we kind of talked at an after hours kind of get together. We then were connected by Jay Hyber out of Vertimax to collab on an article on top and speed about a year and a half later after that. We touched base in between those times. And now here we are like on a podcast weekly, but it was because Nick reached out and said, Hey, TC boost, you know, is because Jay then connected us, not even knowing that we really knew each other. He had no idea. Cause he told me that there was this coach in New Orleans. I was like, Oh, I know Nick, you know, but it's those moments along the way that everybody was open, having conversations with people and just hearing their stories that down the road, all of a sudden it turns into something kind of special. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think you can undervalue that aspect of, you know, business and, and how it just helps us to uh, evolve and grow. So, um, well, you know, another uh, great episode. Um, guys, I know that uh, over the last couple of episodes, we've really tried to make sure that we are hitting on some of the resources uh, that, that we're using for this content. You know, again, uh, a couple of them that that I hit on today. One was uh, Quiet by Susan Cain. If that's a book that you have not read, uh, please be sure to do so. I, I think that um, it's it's been hugely impactful for me as a leader, but also me as a coach um, and just understanding uh, the people that are around us and, and how we can uh, best uh, impact them. Uh, and like we always say, you know, each week, if there's anything that we can do to help you guys out, please feel free to reach out. Uh, this is a start to the conversations and uh, we just want to continue to help in any way that we can. <laughs>